Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Are me? Can you hear me on the phone? I do. I've got you coming out of every orifice. <laughs> I'm really not. You're breaking off quite badly. Hello, and welcome to The Lock-In, where I finally get to talk to people I want to hear from in a place I want to be, the pub. For some reason, this bloody thing has started playing back some rubbish. Oh, right. Where were we? I forgot. I have two. Hello, we're talking today to a farmer. James Rebanks has 185 acres of Hill Farm in the Lake District. His family has farmed there since before the Wars of the Roses, and yet, he argues in his latest book, English Pastoral, it may not go on for much longer. Now, before you dismiss this as yet more whinging of the kind we've come to know and if not love, or at least accept, it's bigger than that. What he's on about is how farming has been industrialised and misdirected and cannot go on as it is. James, there's no point in farming unless it produces food. Are you saying the whole approach of the last 60 years has been wrong? I, <laughs> that's, uh, um, firstly, thank you for having me on the podcast and uh, thank you for that question. Yes, at heart, quite a lot of how we've found for the last 60 years is wrong. Uh, but I'm not going to come on here as a smart aleck and tell you that everybody that did those things was stupid. I, I don't think we realised that a lot of it was wrong at the time. We, but it's now very, very clear that the post-war version of how we should farm is deeply problematic. It wrecks soil and it's trashing ecosystems and it's leading to unsustainable loss of soil and, and wild things all around us. And if you believe the United Nations, and I've no reason not to, they talk about us having only 60, 60 harvests left. We're, uh, we're losing topsoil from our arable areas at an unsustainable rate. Whether it's 60, 100 or 500 doesn't, 500 doesn't really matter. Um, we know that that's unsustainable. And, and therefore, yeah, there's an inescapable conclusion now, which is that there's something wrong with the model that we've been part of. But James, who was it grubbed up the hedges, demolished the walls, poured poison on the land? Who It was farmers, wasn't it? It was me and you both and everyone around us. So you, um, there's, there's a bunch of things happening there, aren't there? There's new technologies, new tractors, diggers that make it possible. So things that weren't possible historically were possible. 
There's uh, incredible societal economic pressure to produce food at a fraction, something like a quarter of the historic price. Um, and there's people like you in the media and, and the academic world who believed alongside us that this, is, this was what a farmer's job was. A farmer was to be essentially a businessman and to treat the land like it was a factory floor. So that pretty much covers everybody. Everybody's got a bit, a bit of blame in that. And in my book, English Pastoral, I tell the story of my family doing those kind of things and why we got to that place where everybody doing it thinks it's a good idea. But, you know, farmers ask for help. Industry and business gives it to them, and then you complain. Well, well, you have to, I, well I'm, I'm not complaining, actually. My, my book is all about um, hope, really, about how we can be much more aware of what we're doing and how we can put the British landscape back together. We can look after rivers better. We can look after woodland better. We can put the, the wildlife back into our landscapes. That's, I, I'm not complaining. I think farmers can do way, way better. It's a book about how farmers can do better. And uh, all I'm saying is if we want them to do better, we have to be really, really clear about why they did those things in the first place, what was pushing them and encouraging them to do them. And then we have to be really sensible about how we can turn that around and make something else happen. Do you want people to have to pay more for food? Possibly. Um, we can, first thing we can do is we can spend the money, the taxpayers' money that we spend on farming in much better ways. So we've spent it in very stupid ways, often in very destructive ways that have actually encouraged us to go in the wrong direction even faster. So I tell the story in my book um, about my memories of the 1980s are of people coming into our farmyard, coming onto our farm from the government or other organisations and basically trying to throw money at us to drain fields or to rip out hedgerows. And they were so the, the full story is complicated. It's a very, very human story. People, people representing you, representing your government at the time, um, were turning up in our remote farmhouse telling us you're outdated, you're old-fashioned, rip the hedge out. And not only that, but we'll pay you to do so. So we can get really grumpy with farmers if we want to. And I think a, a bit of grumpiness is due, to be honest. But it isn't a very good analysis and it isn't a very good way to turn this around and make something better of it. Do, sorry, can I ask you a question? Yeah, go on. Do, do you not think that you and everybody else played a role in this? No, I don't think I had anything to do with it. You've had nothing to do with it? No. You, you, you don't think you benefited from food being a quarter of the price it was historically? You don't think you had anything to do with the electing of governments which paid farmers to do the wrong things over 50 or 60 years? I, I would argue differently. I, I think you have a responsibility just like mine. It's always the crappiest politician who gets the job of agriculture minister and running a department which is notorious as the worst in Whitehall. Because they, they think that you and I will let them get away with it and because they think it doesn't matter. They think they have thought for a very long time that farming didn't matter and was a joke. And, and that's, that's a societal, wider political problem. It'd be very odd indeed to argue that 1% of the population who farm were responsible for that. That's, that's a flaw that we all share. That's a responsibility that we all share. So you do want people to pay more for their food? Well, the first thing I'd like to do is to spend, the more, spend taxpayers' money that we spend on farming in better ways. There's no doubt we can do that. Um, let's put your question a different way. Can we keep making food cheaper and cheaper? Um, which is what many people still believe is sensible without trashing our countryside? And the answer is a categorical no. And probably we've gone too far already. So yes, that probably means that as a society, we have to spend more money on farming and food. Or, um, sorry, it's probably an and, not an or. And we probably need to use lots of other tools like trade policy and 
regulation and legislation to stop practices that we don't want to see in our countryside. This got pretty heavy pretty quick, didn't it? It did. I'm sorry about that. But, I mean, you, good luck with trying to persuade people they ought to pay more for their groceries. Well, so what, so what are you saying? That we, we sit back, we accept that inevitable process, we sit back and we accept the Tesco adverts and all the rest of it would say that food should always be cheaper and we ignore the fact that we're trashing our countryside? Or, or at some point, do, do some of us have to stand up and say, this doesn't work, this is ill thought through and, and we need to think about it differently? I look around, when I go for a walk and I pass a farm... I just see it as a sea of shit and mud and black plastic. They're absolute tips, most farms. Uh, <laughs> some farms are. I don't know where, you, where the farms are that you're looking at or what kind of farms they are, but my farm isn't that, and neither are any of the other farms I'm looking at out, out of the window. They're, they're green. They're reasonably well managed. Um, they're, they're, in many cases, not all, but in many cases they're full of flowers and trees and woodland there's about 50,000 trees been planted on the hillside opposite that I'm looking onto so are, are there ugly farms are there ugly practices are there has some farming got to a really ugly unpleasant place undoubtedly but that's exactly what I'm talking about we need to bring it out of that um, and and put, use every leave every pressure we've got to make it something better so that when you go for a walk you're not seeing eroding soil you're not seeing slurry spread irresponsibly on wet days you're not seeing your beloved fishing rivers spoiled that you're seeing something much more sensible and sustainable and you, you we've only been talking for a few minutes but you seem to be arguing for a kind of apathy in which we'd accept accept that's inevitable accept there's nothing can be done about it and 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 lay down in front of it i i think i i think you're on the wrong side of this there has to be a moment where you say this is not good, this is not acceptable, and we want something else. And then you have to think about how you would get that, right? I've just got used to farmers buggering up the countryside. Well, I haven't got used to that. I'm deeply frustrated by that. I think there are reasons why they're doing that, and I, I'm, not, I'm not proud of that. It's not good for me to hear as a farmer. But not all, to hide away from it. There's a lot of truth in what you say. But... It doesn't have to be like that. I know lots of farmers that don't want to do that. I know lots of farmers who are trying to turn that around. But um, we can lay as much as we, of that as we'd like on individual farmers or farmers as, as a whole. But ultimately, a lot of what they've done has been driven by, by what we've asked them to do. We're still asking them to produce food in ever cheaper ways, regardless of how unsustainable or damaging that is. The reason that there aren't any wild or many wildflowers anymore is because they are otherwise known as weeds and they get in the way of crop cultivation, don't they? Well, there's a, there's a hell of a lot of wildflowers on, on farms like mine. We have over, over 200 species of wildflowers and grasses. We have some of the last 3% of wild upland wildflower meadows in Britain and we've just put 6,500 plug plants in to put more plants into them. So... Um, Yes, the reason that lots of uh, biodiversity has disappeared from the English countryside is because of a, cert a certain way of farming uh, and a lack of valuing of that. Um, yeah, you're not going to find an argument on that from me. I, I, I love wildflowers. I want to put it back together. And I, I want to talk about how we can do that. How are you going to persuade farmers they need to produce food less intensively? Uh, I'm not even sure it's that simple. So the pr if you look back through history... Most societies have a degree of intensive farming. 
it isn't intensive farming per se that's the problem. It's intensive farming everywhere at a landscape scale, which is effectively monocultural. So um, if you have intensive farming in, in, in a sort of patchwork where you still have some of the native woodland, you still have thorny scrub, you still have willows, you still have healthy wetlands and rivers, um, there's room for a degree of intensive farming. And if you're at all realistic and you know that there's going to be 10 billion people on earth, you know that there has to be some intensive farming. Um, so it, I slightly take issue with the word intensive being a problem, but how do you persuade farmers to change? Well, probably about the third, a third of the farmers I know want to change now or, or are changing. Um, probably another third are trapped by tenancies and debt or the culture of their families in, into not quite changing. And then, yeah, let's be honest, probably about a third of the farmers I know still believe in intensive farming. They haven't been persuaded it might be flawed or problematic. When you look at someone like my producer, whom God preserve, my producer is a man who wanders around town trying to find people he can throw money at in order to be, to, to be told that their animals died happy. Is that the sort of person you want to cultivate? And Sorry, Jeremy, you think that's a bad thing? I don't think it's a bad thing at all. I just think that it's a luxury. Okay, okay, sorry, I understand what you're saying. So yes, in, in, in our society, there are people who do not want to pay more for food or cannot, more importantly, cannot pay more for food. Any sensible analysis about how you have better farming and food has to acknowledge that. But if you, if you look at, you know, you take a country like Norway, for example, where I've been and seen their farming and studied it, um, how do you get around that? You don't get around that by making food cheaper. If, if cheaper food did away with poverty, then there wouldn't be any poverty in the United States of America. It's a place riven with poverty and the cheapest food in the world. This is a, a sort of 1980s, completely outdated confusion. And, and actually, it's worse than that. It's, it's, it's how inequality is enabled to happen by constantly driving down the price of food. If you look at many of the healthiest, happiest, most environmentally responsible countries on earth like Norway, yes, they spend more on food, but they have redistribution of wealth that enables the poorest people to do that. Or they subsidize uh, basic food staples so that you so that the poorest people in our society have a secure safe and nutritious food supply if you don't want to grapple with these complexities sure. fine but you, we need to as a society yeah but it's much more complex than you suggest isn't it because you know perfectly well that norway is an oil economy it's kept us float on a sea of oil. I, yes, and I also know that from the 1970s onwards, Norway took food security very seriously. As we're, as we're starting to realise that we have to, we're in the middle of a COVID pandemic. We, for the first time in a generation, English people have been genuinely concerned about where their food's coming from. And there is an awareness, a growing awareness, and there's, there's intimations anyway, that people are spending a lot more food on local, local meat and other things because there's a growing awareness that we need to think really carefully about where our food's coming from. Is it local to us? Is it produced in sustainable and sensible ways? Yes, it's complicated. Nothing I say should be taken as pretending this is easy, but you're, st you're sounding a little bit like somebody who's arguing we shouldn't trouble our, trouble our pretty little heads with this. And I think, I think that's the wrong attitude. I think we have to grapple with that complexity and, and bring about something else. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Where do you sell your meat? I sell my meat to a, a, a lowland farmer who has a butcher and delicatessen shop in the local town. And he sells it for pretty much the price of it. It's sold in supermarkets, but because there's a shorter food supply chain, uh, he does very well doing that. And they're an amazing family business that work with local people in the community and people can go in, even if they're on low in- incomes, they can go in, talk to the butcher about maybe what are the more, more economic cuts how they can eat well for less. Do you think this is a generational thing, James? Do you think that younger people, millennials, who always say they really care about animal welfare and similar issues and the environment and so on, do you think it's going to change when they become more dominant? Um, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure I accept the premise, really. Um, I spend a lot of my life because I write books and because I do Twitter and other things, talking to roomfuls of people in the, on the evening and what have you, all over the place in different kinds of communities. And I, I don't notice an old person, young person divide. I just see an enormous number of people who care deeply about this. And we, we can, you might argue, this is a sort of middle-class affluent thing, but I don't think it is. So I think YouGov, YouGov did a poll recently about the proposed American trade deal, which might lower our environmental and food health food safety standards, 87, 90% of people, British people are against that. That breaks down across class, gender, everything. Um, most British people care about this stuff. They're, they're just stuck in rubbish systems at the moment where they can't exercise, they, they either don't know enough or they can't exercise um, their, sort of flex their muscles to bring about the right kind of change. A lot of people would think, reading the title of your book, English Pastoral, that it was about what a lovely place the countryside is. But it isn't. It's a, it's, it's a tale of struggle and pain and difficulty. Yeah, it's, uh, it's also a place of... Yes, it is that. And it's also a place of beauty and it's a place of families and it's a place of traditions and all sorts of things. It's complicated. Um, Yes, I, th- I think there's often a mismatch between our idealism ab- and romanticism about the countryside and what it really is. 75% of it is farmed. Um, it sometimes is as ugly as you described earlier. Um, it's often used in ways that are flawed. And yet, 
some bits of it aren't ruined, some bits of it are very good, and some bits of it are, impro some bits of it are improving very quickly. And I, I, think, I think that things are changing and we just need more people to, to press the, sort of pull the lever of change to make things happen. You know that poem by Kipling, Our England is a garden and gardens are not made, by saying, oh, how beautiful, and sitting in the shade. I mean, it is, it's, the whole of in, the English countryside is managed, isn't it, in some way, and always has been. It, it is. It, it, garden's a pretty good description. It's a highly man, man and woman changed place. It's, it's, it's been highly, intensively used for a very, very long time. Um, the issue is what level, to what degree we're willing to lose everything in it. And... Uh, my my book basically argues that yes we've always used it yes there's been ugly stuff always yes there's been a hardness to that but there's a real shift beyond the tipping point in the last 40 or 50 years to something something that we need to at the very least handle with care or to understand how dangerous it is what have you what changes have you made to your farm okay so what have we done on our farm taken a step back thought about what habitats and natural processes should be there and tried to put them back to the greatest possible extent, starting at the edges of the field, starting with the hedgerows and the woodland, starting with the least productive bits of the farm, and then working up, becoming more ambitious over time, so that we're now, in many of our pastures and meadows, we're giving them really, really long periods of recovery. So your flowers, uh, your weeds, to use Jeremy's phrase, um, have time to flower and seed and... Yeah, and, and then when we're grazing, we're mobbing up and we're grazing in much shorter but much more intense grazing events like you would have in nature. And what we're seeing is a lot more trampling of organic matter onto the soil. We've raised our soil organic matter by 2 to 3% within five years. And we're seeing just a, a massive driving from the bottom up, from the soil up, uh, increase in things like meadow pipits, uh, voles, frogs and all sorts of other things. So if I take you down the road to where my sheep are right now, there'll be three or four herons in the field. You never see herons in a sheep field uh, managed the traditional way. But with a few tweaks, basically you have those herons landing in that field because uh, it's so full of frogs and voles and other things, they don't want to be anywhere else. What do your neighbours think when they see you doing that sort of thing? Well, that's the funny thing. Lots of my neighbours are doing this. I know you have a very damning uh, impression of what farmers are and what they do, but... Uh, but about half of the farmers in this valley are part of our nature-friendly farming partnership. Some of them would argue that they're better at nature-friendly farming than me. Uh, my neighbour's building bigger ponds than I am. Uh, I have some friends farming just over the horizon from where I'm looking now who are doing an amazing sort of semi-rewilding extensive grazing project. The farm that fell behind me is rewilded with eight ponies on there as proxy grazers. Um, there's a lot of bad news about farming, but I could, I could bring you here and show you. I could show you a lot of good things where this is being turned around. People are listening. And I, I, and it, I think it was in your early questions. I think people have got so used to farmers being grumpy, industrial assholes, for want of a better word, that you're, you're struggling to understand that any of us might be anything else. That's fair enough. We have become accustomed to farmers whinging. You're always whinging about something or other. Of course we are. The weather never does what it wants. We never get paid enough for what we produce. Of course, of course farmers whinge, but, um, but I'm, I'm not actually whinging. You're the one that's whinging. I'm saying we can make the British countryside miles better if, if you back it and I back it and everybody listening to this podcast does. There, that, there has to be a moment, and I think that moment is now, where we demand something different. A friend of mine who is a farmer received a letter not so long ago, and it was addressed to him as, 
his landlord's park keeper. Is that what you're saying? Uh, well, the truth is, if you'd said to my dad 30 years ago that his job was to look after nature here, he might have thought you were asking him to be a park keeper and that there was something derogatory about that. But I, I think that idea is dying fast. Um, we, we do, to an extent, all farmers to an extent, are managing landscapes. And if they're not managing, at least in part, for nature or for natural outcomes, then we've got a real problem. So we need to hit that idea on the head and just reinvent farming so that it's, it is uh, appropriate for the so ecosystems it sits in. It's appropriate for the valley that we sit in here. So there are lots of things we could do on farms in this valley that nobody is doing because we don't think they're appropriate. And... There's lots of things missing in this valley that we're trying to put back. It's, it's not rocket science. A lot of farmers want to do this and we can do it, but we, we can't do it while we're treating farmers like they're stupid or, or just dismissing them out of hand. We went down the other day to Nep in Sussex where they have, they've got this rewilding project. What do you think about that? I think it's really interesting. I've been for a look. I've, I had a look around with Charlie um, Burrell and Isabella Tree and... Uh, I would describe myself as a friend of theirs. I don't. I don't think it's a. What is it? It's. It's an. With all due respect to them, it's a, a large aristocratic estate where they've taken an, an enlightened land management approach to make it wilder. Great. Uh, what can I get from that? I can't copy it because I'm not big enough. Um, to, I'd have three chickens and a pig or something. I couldn't make a living from that. So what, what can I do? I can learn. A, if I stop being defensive and I actually listen to what Isabella's talking about and Charlie, I can see that thorny scrub is amazing for wildlife and I can, I can pack a lot of thorny scrub behind fences on all sorts of bits of this farm. I can see that sort of succession and letting nature do its thing in at least part of your land, um, in their case with cattle and pigs, so I'm copying that. We've, we've got a couple of pigs down the road now and we're putting them into the woodland areas because of what I learned at NEP. So... Uh, is it the answer for all of rural England? Probably not. Does it, does it have a bunch of lessons that most of us can learn from and apply in different ways on our land? I would argue yes. Tell me something. You left school as soon as you could, more or less. Uh, yeah. Where did you learn to write so well? <laughs> uh, by reading books, probably, like most writers. Um, I'm a, from about 17 onwards, I was a reading obsessive and... Thank you for thinking I write well, by the way. That's a compliment that I shall take. Uh, yeah, and I think I've just turned my obsessive uh, quest, per quest for perfection in breeding sheep into trying to, uh, to, trying to write as good a prose as I can. So, yeah, I don't, see the, I don't see the point in aiming to be ordinary. You want to try and be extraordinary in anything you do, don't you? You wouldn't think about quitting farming. No, I, I want to be part of this movement to persuade people like you that have given up on us that we can actually transform the British countryside, that we can... I think it's the most exciting time to be a farmer ever. I'm, I'm not downhearted. I'm not depressed. I, well, I'm, I'm slightly frustrated how bad things have got, but um, I, I, as I say in my book, I believe we can do this, and it's exciting. It, it makes me want to get up in the morning and go around my farm. It makes me makes me want to invite you up here to show you round, to show you that this farm is not what you think a farm is and um, to show you that I can farm within a, a sort of ecologically sensible patchwork. Um, yeah, I, no, I don't want to give that up. I'd love to come up sometime. You're more than welcome.
But you say you barely make a living at it. It's a lifestyle choice being a farmer like you, isn't it? No, it's not a lifestyle choice. It's exactly it's exactly the kind of farming we need. Not not just the way I do, the way that lots of farmers that are trying to do regenerative farming. So, uh, the slightly the sort of really sad thing about conventional farming is that nobody's making any money. Most farmers that are running around like crazy are in massive debt uh, uh, and are not making a living. Uh, actually, since we've made a lot of the changes on the farm, we're making more money than we used to. We're still not getting rich by any means, but we're not making a loss like we were in the past when we were chasing our tail, trying to farm in the wrong way. We're actually, last year was the best year we've had on the farm for the last five or six years. So is this economic suicide? No, it's actually sensible economics on a farm like ours to cut the input, input costs, do it as naturally as possible, produce what you can from your land using photosynthesis and healthy soil, this is this is good business, not bad business. The the degree to which I'm profitable and how much money we make uh, is frustrating. There's definitely a need for us as a society to value sustainably produced food higher, but that's an issue for another day, maybe. And all the time you're fending off, presumably, the blokes from the agri-pharmaceutical industry and the agrochemical industry, who are like a drug dealer, aren't they? They're trying to sell you their stuff all the time. Yeah, they, they they totally are. And as I write in the book, I, there's a section in the book where I travel to Iowa and Kentucky. You want to you want to see this go to its natural conclusion. If when you get when you get to those places, um, it's all driven by debt. It's entirely unsustainable. They're losing topsoil at an unsustainable rate. Who's making money? The people who sell insurance, the people who sell giant machinery, the people who sell pesticides, and the people that sell synthetic fertilizer. And then at the other end of the scale, the people that rip you off on everything you produce, because there's sort of pseudo monopolies in which a handful of companies take everything from you and pay you too little for it. If if we think that American farming is the future, we're, we're utterly deluded. It It doesn't just turn the farmer into a junkie, it turns a whole society into a junkie. And when you look at those places, they all vote for Trump. I mean, it's the most toxic, depressing rural you've ever seen in your life. You think the English countryside is less than ideal at the moment. We, could, we can make it worse by going further down the American road. You're anti-Brexit. I'm, uh, I'm confused by Brexit, is the truth. Confused by it. I, I can understand that some people might think you could have a nationally based environmental and farming and food policy and that it might be better than the common agricultural policy of the past. In theory, that might be true. Uh, what I'm really against is, is the lowering of standards and the driving down even further through this American trade deal that's, that's proposed. That's, that's the worst thing you could do to the English countryside. I can't imagine anything we could do in the next 20 years that would be more disastrous. What, than signing up to the trade deal with America? That signing up to a trade deal with America, which would drive down our standards, import things produced in less sustainable, less welfare-friendly ways than we produce them. So they use something like five times as much antibiotic. Um, their farming's the worst on earth, and then they, they dump the stuff produced from it in other countries. They try to dissuade place of origin labeling, so you can't even tell where my stuff was produced or whether it was done better. And they call environmental payments or schemes hidden subsidies and try to dissuade other countries from managing their environment in more enlightened ways. If that isn't a disaster, I don't know what a disaster is. James, thank you very much. All right, thank you both. Thank you. There you are, James Rebanks, thoroughly challenging the stereotype of the taciturn northern farmer. Next time, I'm talking to the noted scourge of the clergy, Richard Dawkins, 
feel free to join us for that. In the meantime, look after yourself. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.